Jeff answering a question on our Monday podcast. But to the point about where do the other pucks come from? Are they really goal number one, two, three? The answer is no. Those are just random pucks. They're just prop pucks more than anything else. You have anything to add to the, the puck phenomenon? Way to ruin it, Jeff. Oh, okay. Yes, every puck is saved just in case it's special. You for know the- what's going to happen now? Because you just did this and <laughs> this pot is so hugely influential. Oh, yeah. You're going to have people, every time someone has a four-goal game now, like Marner did the other night, they're going to be holding up four pucks and there's going to be people tweeting at the Maple Leafs or Marner. Those are three <laughs> fake pucks and one real one. <laughs> or they might be two fake and two real because they probably get the hat trick puck. Yeah, they'll get the hat trick puck. But goals one and two, yeah, no chance. You know, Elliot, if we had the rights to play Brenda Lee's I'm Sorry, this would be the appropriate time to play it. want to start the podcast with an email. Evan in Yorkton, Saskatchewan submits this. Big fan of your podcast, never miss an episode. Thanks, Evan. It's my go-to move for blocking out all the noise from my children while I take some me time and wash dishes. (laughs) We're big with the dishwashing set, this podcast is. I'm a lifelong Red Wings fan, and while I was watching the game against Carolina last night, Ken Daniels and Mickey Redmond talked extensively about each puck being swapped out after a goal and cataloged by the game slash goal scorer and said many are then sold or given away at various events. They even mentioned that after Marner's four-goal game, <laughs> the Leafs requested the four pucks from each goal and the Red Wings obliged them. Therefore, according to them, Marner has his real four-goal pucks, not quote-unquote props. So I'm wondering, are Ken and Mickey wrong or are Jeff and Elliot wrong or does Detroit operate differently than other NHL buildings slash teams which you weren't aware of? The answer is, I was wrong. I'll take this one. All right. Good on you. I'm impressed. Unlike Elliot's, okay, when we <laughs> had the discrepancy between who won that Anaheim-Buffalo game when Trevor Zegers and Sonny Milano did their little thing, which will be a highlight forever, where Elliot wanted to spread out the blame. Oh, Amel's going to have to absorb a little bit of this too. <laughs> Merrick, certainly. I mean, you're standing there, so you're guilty by a association. All of this, I wait, will Wait, 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 wait. You are not guilty by association. You <laughs> asked the question without knowing the answer. Come on. Anyhow, Mr. Friedman, I will take all of this one. This was my fault. I was under the impression, very much so, that knowing that officials change the pucks all game long, I was under the impression that pucks that were taken out of circulation were discarded and they weren't saved, and they weren't cataloged. I was watching that Carolina-Detroit game, and it was a heck of a game. And Dylan Larkin was amazing. Moritz Sider was fantastic in this game. Robbie Fabry almost ended it a couple of different times too. But yes, when Ken and Mickey started talking about that, I said, "Uh uh-oh, because listen, it's Ken Daniels, Mickey Redmond. Like, they know what they're talking about. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we're wrong on this one, Fiji. And by we, again, I mean me. This is mine. We say a lot of stupid things on this podcast. Like (laughs) There is a lot of stupidity in these walls. I have to say, I don't know if I've ever gotten on something that's harmless. I don't know if I've ever gotten more correction or faster correction than I did on this. And the funny thing was, I was going to leave it to the podcast, but I got so many people writing about it and sending me notes about it and really good qualified people sending me notes and writing me notes about it that we couldn't ignore it before then. We had to mention it on your show. I wrote about it in the blog. I had a referee who sent me a note. I had someone from a team send me a note to say, here's what Winnipeg does, for example. There was so much response that We could not hold it back for four days until the next podcast came out. (laughs) And when I heard the Red Wings did it on their show. So good. That's when I realized that we had created a crisis that had to be addressed (laughs) immediately. I feel like Denis Lemieux. I go to box, I feel ashamed two minutes and you are free. You know what I got free? And this was very creative. I loved it. One person actually sent me an Ottawa Senators goal sent me uh, the clip of it on YouTube and said, I have this puck mm. because I bought it. To Ken and Mickey's point, they sell these you know, goal 
pucks after the game at, uh, at various outlets. I thought that was very creative, but I'm like you, I heard it fast. And you know what? One of the things that I love about doing sports, and I don't know if this is unique to sports as opposed to entertainment or news or whatever, I always keep in the back of my mind that as I'm doing anything either here or on the radio or wherever, that there are a lot of people that are listening that know a lot more than I do. I'm convinced that it's the one area of media where your listeners know more than you do. I know that's certainly true of me. And this week, I was very much reminded of it, Elliot. Very much reminded of it. This is just proof of what your influence is, Jeff, that when you are wrong, the order has to be restored immediately. And so for that, we thank Ken Daniels and Mickey Redman. And everybody who wrote in. And again, special thanks to Ken Daniels and Mickey Redman. One of the best broadcast booths in all of hockey forever. Gentlemen, thank you. And with that, we'll kick it off. Welcome to 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the all-new GMC AT4 lineup. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, welcome once again to the podcast. We got the ugly ugliness out of the way early, and we'll focus on the news. And we'll focus on Elliot Rick Nash. We sat down with him on Thursday morning. Was really gracious with his time. His number is going to be retired on Saturday. 61 goes to the rafters at Nationwide Arena. Then the Blue Jackets face off against the Boston Bruins, another team uh, that Rick Nash played for alongside you know CBJ and the uh, the New York Rangers. Before we get to the interview a little bit later on, want to hit some news. But do you have a quick thought on? On Rick Nash's career, he's he's one of those players that, you know, we saw him like all the way from, you know, the uh, the London Knights of the OHL right until, you know, the very end uh, in the NHL, 15 season career and international resume as well. What's your thoughts on Rick Nash and, and his career? Well, I just want to say that you should stay to the end of the podcast because after you and I are finished doing the interviewing, Amal hijacks it and asks what Nash thinks is the best question of the entire interview. And it's a good question, too. You're going to want to stay through this to see how these two supposedly experienced podcasters are completely shown up by their producer. Yeah. And Nash was a great interview. He told a lot of great stories, a lot of good stories. My credibility has already been shattered with the pucks thing. And then <laughs> Amal just comes in to, to finish me off, but it's a wonderful, like I loved Rick Nash. I think you did as well. Like he was like such a horse. He was such a beast of a hockey player. I mean, how many times did you see him, you know, going hard to the net with guys draped on his back? You know, I referenced the the one goal in the interview in the the World Championships in, in Halifax. That game would have been at the Metro Center against Finland, where he's got like it's like luggage draped all over his back, and he still scores. And like he provided highlight after highlight for a really new market, and I think that's really important for an expansion team to have a player that can single handedly bring you out of your seats. And even though there were a lot of lean years there. You would go watch a game in Columbus and Rick Nash would do something. Rick Nash would score. Rick Nash would do something spectacular. Like there was always something that Nash was doing, even though it was a lean time in Columbus, you know, wasn't exactly, you know, winning a lot of games. He, he's one of the people that just reminded me, and Matt Sundin was another, that just because you don't look mad all the time doesn't mean you don't have a burning desire to win. Yeah. And you should never mistake calmness for weakness or politeness for weakness. And I always think about that when I think about Nash. All right. You'll hear that interview coming up in a little bit. Uh, before we get there, though, a few things I want to go over with you. Wednesday was an interesting night at Madison Square Garden. It was, you know, two really good goaltenders staring each other down. It was the return of Pavel Bushnevich to MSG, and it was a big win by the New York Rangers. We haven't really talked a lot about them recently. Where is Elliot Friedman at on the New York Rangers? Are they more than just this all-world goaltender? So I worked Wednesday night Toronto-Buffalo, and I didn't get a chance to watch a lot of Rangers blues. It was on the other TV, but as you know, when it's not your, yep. your primary game, you're not paying attention to it as much. But on Thursday morning, 
you know, like I think I was probably like a lot of people watching that game. The Rangers are up 2 nothing. Blues score three times in a row. To the goal for O'Reilly, they score! Ryan O'Reilly, the captain, gets the Blues on the board. And the Blues fans at Madison Square Garden on their feet. Oh, he had Barbashev. They get it to him. Barbashev to the goal. Score! 2-2 in New York. 1.23 to go in the second period. O'Reilly behind the net. They score! David Perron and the Blues lead 3-2. 15.8 seconds to go in the second period. And you're sitting there thinking, okay, they've broken the cone of Shesterkin. Mm. For one night, they've knocked out his mojo. It's been stolen like Austin Powers, like fat bastard stole Austin <laughs> Powers' mojo. And you're thinking, okay, this is not the Rangers' night. But they came back to win. O'Reilly between the circles as the crowd chants for Igor Shesterkin. 2-10 remaining in the third. And Rangers I went and I, I watched from the 3-2. And I wanted to see, like, did the Rangers earn this win or did something else happen? And I thought the Rangers really earned it. They could have folded at that point in the game because the Blues, like we said, had punctured it. But they came back and they controlled play and, and they won the game. You know, the Blues had their moments, but I thought the Rangers really responded. Well, they call them a comeback, kids, if this thing holds up. The Rangers have come from behind for the 18th time this season. Empty netter off the stick of Artemi Panarin. Great job at the defensive blue line by the Rangers. And no sooner had Huso exited stage left that the puck got deposited in the blank net. 5-3 Rangers. And to me, that was a very important win because I think when you're a team that's driven by their goaltender like the Rangers are, like Buffalo was, I remember there'd be nights where, you know, the Sabres, you know, Hasek wouldn't have a good night and the Sabres would be like, oh, well, it's not, we're not winning this one because Hasek's not there. And I thought that was a game where, you know, the Rangers said, okay, we got kind of blown up a bit here, but the rest of the team kind of came back and bailed them out. And I really like that. Like, that's the kind of game I think you find a way to win if you really have a chance at being a good team. And I think this Rangers group is probably not as as good as it's going to be. I think as they get more experience, they're going to get better. Look, I think Shesterkin has a chance to win the Hart Trophy this year. But I, I do think there are players on that team. And, you know, Truba is one of the guys I think has had a really good year. I think Miller, his regular defense partner, is coming too. And I think Truba deserves a lot of credit for that. Like I said, I don't think this team is as good as it's going to be yet, but I think they're going to get to a point where they're seen as more than, you know, Shesterkin carrying them to victory. I do think that's going to come because I just think there's a lot of players there that I see that are getting better. And Truba, in a lot of ways, I think he doesn't get as much attention as some of the other guys, but I think he's a big factor there. So a couple of things there. One, uh, to your latest point about Jacob Truba, just me, or does it seem as if this season, he's always been a physical defender, mm -hmm. but it's almost as if he's next level. And there have been some signature highlight body checks that we're, we're all very well aware of, but it's fighting, it's hitting, it's 23 minutes a night, it's engaged on every shift. Like this is some of the best hockey we've seen Jacob Truba play period. I agree with that. And Adam Fox uh, as well, it continues to be, you know, an elite level, you know, defenseman and his big ticket is coming. Like the Adam Fox $9.5 million cap hit Elliot starts next season. Yeah. That's a huge chunk of change there. For yeah. The but Rangers. he deserves every penny. Oh, I'm not saying that he doesn't deserve it. I'm just saying like, don't get too comfy with uh, what your salary cap looks like because next year Adam Fox is going to blow it up. I think that that's one of the things the Rangers are, are looking at. Like one of the guys I know that they were really, they were interested in was Olofsson from Buffalo Yeah, and you know, they didn't do it. And a major reason was that they can't handle what his situation is next year. Mm -hmm. So I, I think they're really mindful 
of all of that. You know, Fox, I didn't even mention because to me that goes without saying. I think everybody knows what he is. You know, when you talk about Truba being more physical this year, look, this is a team that made changes last season because their owner didn't think they were tough enough, right? Oh, yeah. So you go out there and you get Reeves and you get Barkley Goodrow, and those guys are tough players. They're also really good teammates. And to me, team toughness is is more than just blowing guys up or fighting. Team toughness is being hard on pucks. Team toughness is about making life difficult for your opponents. I just think that this team looked at the way that their owner challenged them last year, and they're a bit meaner. They've got a great goaltender. You know, we've had some people who asked us, you know, can you talk a little bit about the Rangers? I'd like to hear what you have to think. When I look at that team, Jeff, I think they look there and they say, we can win playoff series because we have Shesterkin. So they obviously got left a lot of talent by the Jeff Gordon regime. Yes. And Chris Drury has made his tweaks. He has made his tweaks. And I think he's going to take a big swing at the deadline this year because their division is pretty wide open. I think Carolina is the best team, but it's wide open. But I also still look at them and I say, okay, I would do that too if I had Shesterk and I'd take my wax. I still think that the Rangers are a team that is still very young in their growth into a contender. I wasn't sure when the Rangers traded Pavel Buchnevich last year. I understand they did it because they were worried they couldn't fit him. But I really wondered about them trading away a player like that. And I still think it's a loss. But the one thing I do believe is that Goudreau and Reeves have been really good for that team. And you know what, Elliot? And he was injured and hasn't been there for the majority of this season. You know, they traded him for Sammy Blay. And if he were in the lineup right now, he, I'm convinced as well, would be a difference maker for the Rangers. I think they have a big window as long as Panarin continues to be an elite player. I think they have a big window and I think they're really early in it very early in it here's how i look at the rangers and we're, we're similar because i look at teams that are and listen we can all remember the jeff gordon letter to the fan base right we're, we're throwing in the white towel we're rebuilding this thing and we're coming back so you start to think to yourself okay what's the wind cycle going to look like here when is the wind cycle starting where are they at on the wind cycle right now as they redevelop this team as they rebuild this team And I look at the Rangers this year and I'm with you. Like, I think the Rangers are a really good team that are, I don't want to say propped up because that sounds too strong, but they're significantly enhanced by Igor Shishterkin, almost to the point where we thought the Rangers, or at least I did, I thought the Rangers would get to this point in their division two years from now. Yes, Or maybe a year from now, but because of the goalie, they're there right now. Now, that isn't to say that they couldn't take a step back next season. We all know that rebuilds aren't linear and they don't follow one exact line. It goes, it lurches forward and it stumbles back along the process. It wouldn't even surprise me if they took a step back next season. But right now, what this goaltender is doing is saying, guys, I'm going to give you a taste of how good we're going to be in two years and I'm going to give it to you right now. And my suspicion is, further to your point, Elliot, that if I'm Chris Drury, the general manager of the Rangers, I'm saying, we got to capitalize on this. We are two years ahead of the program. And we don't know what this is going to be next year. We don't know what this is going to be two years down the road. But somehow, we ended up here. We have to do something right now. You're closer to it than I am. Is it a forward? Is it a defenseman? Is it both? It could be both. I don't know. But I'm with you. I can see the Rangers looking at this and saying... Listen, we're getting super elite goaltending right now. We cannot squander this. I know this isn't the plan. We thought we'd be here in a couple of years, but here we are. Let's deal with this. And as long as this guy stays healthy, Igor Shesterkin is putting on a clinic. And he almost scored a goal against Ottawa. Yes. Not too long ago, which would have just been the the the, uh, the cherry on top of all of it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. That's where I'm at with the Rangers. And as we've made the point before, and I know if you're a, you know, if you're an Islanders fan or a Philadelphia Flyers fan or a New Jersey Devils fan, you hate to hear this. But at the end of it, Elliot, the NHL is just better when the Rangers are a competitive team. Whether you like them or you hate them. It's just better when the Rangers are competitive. 
It just is. It's a better NHL. And you know what, Elliot, when we talk about the Rangers, like sure, we'll talk a ton about Shishterkin and we'll talk tons about Chris Kreider, who's having a really nice season and Mika Zibanejad and Artemi Panarin, obviously, you know, someone that doesn't get the headlines that he probably deserves and he's in a really important spot. That's Ryan Strom. He's had a really nice year. And if you're a Ranger fan, you know Jim Dolan. And generally he leaves the Rangers alone and he's a lot harder on the Knicks. But he sent shockwaves through you last year and said, I'm impatient. Mm -hmm. So now you've got a shot. I think they're going to go for it. So, Elliot, as we're recording this podcast on Thursday evening, John Cooper has just been ejected um, from the Tampa Bay Lightning-Pittsburgh Penguins game, uh, a game that is being pretty much dominated by the Pittsburgh Penguins. So here we go. It's going to be dropped to the right of Vasilevsky. Crosby will take the drop. Uh Uh-oh. John Cooper just just gave it to Wes McCauley, and we'll see what happens here. He's still barking at him. So, extra minutes here. Wow. And there goes John Cooper down the tunnel. He's done for the night. He's tossed. Wow. So, Braden Point has gotten into a fight. The coach has now been tossed out. Hockey coaches are not like baseball managers. We don't see ejections very often uh, for hockey coaches, but Wes McCauley said, enough's enough, and Cooper turned around and made the walk, but not before getting a good bark in at Wes McCauley. First of all, I'd like to say this all came at the end of a scrum involving Corey Perry and Mark Friedman. And there is no question in my mind that Mark Friedman is completely innocent of anything in this altercation. And Merrick Sidlicki never did anything wrong in his career either. (laughs) Now, sometimes I wonder, you know, Cooper's a really smart guy. Pittsburgh is dominating that game. As that happened, the score was 3-1 Pittsburgh, and they were playing great. So sometimes I kind of wonder if Cooper's a bit frustrated, but he's also trying to motivate his players a bit. He knows they like challenges. Remember us talking about that Headman game earlier this year where they only had 4D and he was like, oh, we're going to win this one. So I kind of wonder if Cooper knows that about his group and he's trying to get them going that way. The funniest thing about it is Wes McCauley tossed Mike Sullivan out of a game five years ago. So I wonder what Sullivan's thinking watching this on the other bench. That was over a goaltender interference ruling. Mm -hmm. Sullivan didn't like the call, and he lost it, and he kept going actually later, and then McCauley threw him out. The only other one I remember recently was uh, Peter DeBoer in a 6-0 game when he was still coaching San Jose. Uh, Evander Kane got tossed and he was like ripping the referees after and they threw him out too. So I think that was four years ago. I think that's the last one I remember, Jeff. But Mm -hmm. as I was watching that, and it certainly was high quality entertainment, I was just wondering (laughs) if Cooper's, he's mad, he's standing up for his players and his team. But I also wonder if on some level he's saying like, guys, this is a joke and you got to come back. You know what it might have reminded him of? And John Cooper has talked about this before. Remember what happened on opening night? When they lost to Pittsburgh, they laid an egg, right? Yeah, and I lost the in-season Stanley Cup, which I should have had (laughs) for at least one day. So that's why I know what happened. Yeah, 6-2 was the final score. Now, a couple of weeks later, Tampa did beat Pittsburgh. Yeah. But that was a big one. And I remember that game very well. First game for the uh, the in-season Cup. And... You're watching, you know, Thursday night's Tampa-Pittsburgh game and you're starting to get those memories of of what happened. Because Pittsburgh come out fast on these guys. Mm-hmm. Like, Pittsburgh was all over Tampa, specifically early. And, you know, Crosby scored. Like, it was, this thing has all been Pittsburgh. And it's probably giving John Cooper or the Tampa Bay Lightning memories of opening night. And John well, Cooper decided, I'm going to do, or in this case, say the, something about it. It, it was... I was shocked that we were shorthanded. Um, you know, that team, they don't take, for some reason, they're by far the lowest penalized team in the league. I'm not sure why, but they are. And, and, uh, you know, for us to go down again, to be short out of, out of that situation, it was a little frustrating, but number four goes over and, and, uh, he goes to their bench and gives them an explanation, whatever he did, never came to ours. So now, 
I would have, would have liked courtesy there, but I'm just, I'm not so sure in all the years, like what I said is something like he'd never heard before in his history of refing. So I, I want to know what that was. And as a, as a head coach, you know, you have a duty to, you know, coach the game and, and, you know, at times you do get a little emotional and stuff like that. But like I said, I, I'm not, I don't know what I invented that had me tossed out. Number four saw it that way, I guess. Okay. So Elliot, before we get to this Rick Nash interview and as Elliot, you mentioned, stay tuned right to the very end where Amel Delich, you know, shows us it's a masterclass on how to interview an athlete. Yes, Amel, we bow to you. A couple of things uh, about the Winnipeg Jets. We've talked plenty about them. And I think a lot of us are wondering, like, what's going to happen with Andrew Kopp through all of this? We've talked about him periodically throughout the season. Is there anything new on Andrew Kopp? So one of the things I, I just kind of wondered was, would there be any chance that the Jets might change their mind here? That... They might just say, you know what, we're going to make some changes and maybe we keep Andrew Cobb. You know, the problem is the Jets are a notoriously quiet organization and the agent here, Overhart, has just decided he's going to go quiet on this one too. But I don't sense that it's changed. You know, because we had a long conversation about them last week and I, yeah. it got me thinking, is there any possibility here they say, okay, the way this year's gone, we, we want to keep them because we might make some other changes. I just don't get that sense that's going to be possible. I don't get any sense there's been any more start of a negotiation or anything like that that makes me believe that there could be an about face and cop could stay in Winnipeg. I just, sometimes you hear things, I'm not hearing anything that indicates that that's going to happen. So, you know, I think he's going to be pretty coveted. And I think Colorado is looking for a center. Mm. It's one of the few things they don't do great. It doesn't always matter. You can never have too many centers. And the other thing, too, is, you know, if you think you're going to lose Kadri to free agency, it just gives you a, a chance to look, see at a guy who you might be interested in any way on the market. It's the kind of thing I could see Colorado trying to do because I think he could help them for this year mm -hmm. and potentially in the future. So I'm kind of wondering about that one. You know what I'm curious about, Elliot? I'm always curious what happens when you put something out mm -hmm. that you think is just a nice little piece, maybe a feel-good piece, something that has some positivity attached to it, and you get an avalanche back. Now, on television, on Hockey Night in Canada last year, that would have been the situation with the uh, the Toronto Marlies, Sam Gagne, and John Tavares yeah, um, taking yes. control of that team. And I could tell, like, right away, oh, boy, Elliot's going to hear about this one because these are my people, Elliot. I know these people, <laughs> and I know I know what you're going to get and how much, of a, how much of a storm that caused. Yeah. I was really intrigued to see you write about Michael Misha under the umbrella of the exceptional status situation in the Ontario Hockey League. Now, it's believed that he's applied. Mm -hmm. It's also believed that uh, William Moore, who's his teammate with the Mississauga Senators of the GTHL, has applied as well. Ryan Robruck, as well, the London Junior Knights, there's a belief that he's applied too. But I'm curious, what was the feedback you got oh when God. you put Misha's name? And here's why. There's one scout that sends me video of every single game he plays. I have every single Mississauga Senators game. And always like a day later, it's like, did you see Misha? Did you see Misha? Did you see Misha? These are people that I talk to. These are friends. This is like my life, right? Like minor hockey in Ontario. What's the feedback that you got after you put Michael Misha's name out there? As is predictable, I got hammered. Uh, <laughs> don't venture into minor hockey. That's uh, once again, I'm reminded of that. No, but you get hammered. Like, what was the nature of like people that wrote to you? Like, no one's no one's going to dispute that Michael Misha deserves no, exceptional status. No, but it's status. almost like there's anger by omission. Well, if you write about him, you got to write about oh, this kid or yeah, that yeah, kid, yeah, 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 and yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah. what happened. You know, I didn't realize it was the GTHL top prospects game the other night, and I called someone who happened to be there. I said, "Give me a, a note." 
And uh, he goes, uh, well, last couple shifts, this Misha looked really good. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll just put that in. I didn't even realize Stewie was coaching in it. He he told me about that. So yeah, I just figured I'd throw it in there. Ah, we'll give a young kid a plug. What's the bad thing about that? <laughs> and it was bad because I got, what about more? What about more? <laughs> that's his teammate too come on Freed. you should know this it's like you're dividing the dressing room and then someone actually called me and i said he's from london he's not playing in the greater toronto hockey league prospects game like give me a break but this person was actually explaining to me that he thinks of all three of those kids robrecht is the one who is most deserving he doesn't know how many will get it mm. but he thinks of the three of them robrecht is the one who's most ready for it i think him and misha both get it which would be unique because that's never happened yeah it would be the first time right john tavares but it's always one at a time john tavares aaron Eckblad, connor mcdavid sean day shane wright in the queue joe valeno um in the western hockey league connor bedard there have been players that have been turned down. They never announced the players that applied, and they never obviously announced the players that got turned down. But John McFarland got turned down. Graham Clark, Tag Bertuzzi, who was Todd Bertuzzi's son, I believe, got turned down. And I believe that Jack Hughes got turned down as well when he applied for exceptional status into the OHL a season early. So I was all too delighted to read that note, Elliot, just because... I knew what was coming next. <laughs> I knew what you were getting next. Before we go to Rick Nash, I just want to recognize the fantastic opening face-off tonight between Chicago and Edmonton where Nicholas Jalmerson dropped the puck. Mm. Duncan Keith took the draw for the Oilers and got a he got a video tribute later against Jonathan Taves. And Jeff, what is the etiquette when you have a ceremonial face-off? The home team wins. Well, Duncan Keith didn't make it that easy. <laughs> he, he decided that he was going to give Jonathan Taves a fight. Like, Taves wasn't ready for it either. He, he goes down, and then Keith leaned right in and tried to knock it away from him, and then Taves battled back. You know, Jalmerson, anybody who listens to this in the Chicago area, you know how good a player Jalmerson was. Oh, boy. You know, I, I will say this, that, that trade happened on the uh, day of the draft in Chicago. And Joel Quenville that day was giving a speech or a lecture or a, I don't know what they call it at the uh, coaches conference. And he, he stormed out of it when he heard Jalmerson got traded. Yeah. That's how much he felt that Jalmerson meant to the Blackhawks. Like just a pro who threw his body in front of uh, everything. And that was a hilarious <laughs> opening face off tonight. I remember Elliot being at an OJHL game once. This is early in the season, might have even been a season opener, where the captain for the visiting team, like not just tried to aggressively win the face off, but like slapped the puck into the corner and it led to a brawl. It was one of the wildest things I ever saw in the OJ. Welcome to junior hockey in Canada, folks. Um, but that is a really nice touch um having those two take the face off as chalmerson drops it he was a hell of a player oh yeah oh man oh man we'll hit a break when we come back you'll hear from rick nash number 61 the number goes up to the rafters on saturday at nationwide arena before the blue jackets face off against the boston bruins you will hear from rick nash in moments on 32 thoughts the podcast Pleased to be joined by Rick Nash. Um, Rick, first of all, congratulations. Uh, number 61 goes to the rafters. This isn't new for you. This happened in junior with the London Knights. We'll get there. But when you were told, like, what's going through your mind? We've all seen the video at this point. At what point do you think, hold on a second here, this might be about me? Yeah, I didn't catch on to it for a while. You know, it, it was one of those meetings that I was told where the owner was going to welcome the uh, the new players and, and the uh, returning players to have a good season and so on and so forth. And I was trying to stand at the back of it because I didn't really, I've been through a lot of those and didn't really need to be the center point of it. And Todd Chirac kept pushing me forward and I had cameras following me, which they told me that I was uh, getting followed for a day in the life of a front office job, retired player. So they, they had a good, uh, mm. a good hook in it. You know, it, it was fun. And 
and the emotions that went through me when they first told me was incredible. That's one of the things that I kind of heard a lot of Rick is that you've always been a guy who likes to be under the radar. You don't like attention on you. And, you know, some of your friends were even kind of laughing about how your face looked in that video and, you know, how you're going to feel on Saturday night when all this attention is on you, when you obviously you appreciate it, but you don't always like it. And they kind of laughed about that whole dichotomy of happy to be honored, but not so thrilled to be in the spotlight. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, Elliot. Um, you know, I, I feel like I've played kind of my career that way of, you know, not, not wanting to be the guy up front and, and center. And obviously a moment like this kind of brings that out. You know, it'll be difficult, but I'm going to try to enjoy it and, and try to make sure that, you know, it's a big moment for the organization, for the fans, for the city too, with it being the, the first number. Mm -hmm. But if I had my choice, I would probably be up in the nosebleeds at the top section watching something like this. <laughs> you know, one of the great stories I heard was, was it the day after you were drafted and the story about the hostess in the diner where you went for breakfast? Can you tell that story? Are you talking about the one that was in Columbus when we... Yes, yes. Yeah, so... How I remember it, I'm sure Todd Chirac might remember it a bit different, but uh, he picked me up and we were doing a, a media tour and it was my first time in Columbus. And we walked into a uh, Bob Evans, I believe, to, yeah. to grab a coffee before we we started circulating. And I think I remember that the, uh, the waitress that was serving us uh, mentioned something about, oh, you guys have blue jacket shirts on. Um, didn't you guys just draft a, a new first overall pick? And it was it was tough to tell her that I was standing right in front of her uh, ordering a coffee. <laughs> Speaking of the draft, I mean, your draft day story is uh, and I remember the draft very well. And it was, uh, you know, Doug McClain and Rick Dudley getting together to do a trade. So so Columbus could grab you first overall. When you woke up that morning, where did you think you were going? Yeah. So that morning I kind of had. No idea, to be honest with you. I know for me and Joe Resnick, where we kind of wanted to be was Columbus because we knew that they had the the defenseman and Rusty Klesla. They had the goalie and Pascal Leclerc, and they didn't draft a forward yet. Obviously, Atlanta had um, had Heatley and Kovalchuk, and Florida was uh, set on Bomeister from everything you heard. So everything that me and Joe Resnick was hearing was that Philly or Vancouver were going to try to jump up uh, somewhere and grab a spot and try to get me. So in the morning, I was thinking Philly or Vancouver. Now, the, the night before, I met with Doug and we had a great meeting and I kind of expressed to him how, you know, I thought Columbus was a great fit and uh, he expressed to me that he wanted me. Then that's where kind of our stories change, uh, change routes a little bit the way we tell it. So, you know, I, I had no idea, but those were probably the two teams that I was thinking at the time. When did you know? Great question. I honestly knew about five to seven minutes on the clock before uh, Columbus got put on the clock before the draft started when uh, Gino Retta came running up to me. And I remember I was sitting there with my family and he said, you won't believe this, but uh, Columbus just swapped picks for the first overall. And then uh, hmm. I knew right then and there that Doug uh, worked his magic to get me. Now, what is your best Doug McLean story? We worked with him, so we saw a lot of them. Oh, boy. But what is the best Doug McLean story that doesn't get us all fired? <laughs> I have a, I have one great one that I was saving, uh, that I was thinking of telling Saturday night. I'll share it with you guys. We were playing my first year, and we were playing against um, Nashville. And you remember the D-man, Zidlicky? Merrick Zidlicky, yeah. Yeah, cross-checked me in the, in the O-zone. And I turned around and we dropped the gloves and we started fighting. And I believe it was my first NHL fight, possibly. The referees are going to let the Blue Jackets have a little leeway here. Here goes Rick Nash with Merrick Zedlitsky. That's Rick Nash starting to hammer the back of Zedlitsky's head with the right. He doesn't want to throw to his face because he's wearing a shield and he could really damage his hand. Now he's got his helmet off. He's free to throw them. And he's getting that hand free. The leading goal scorer in the NHL. And he knows how to throw them. And there was about three minutes left in the 
first period or second period, whatever it was. And, you know, they kicked the guys out because you got a five minute major. So you just go to the room. And I went back to Timmy Leroy's office to uh, to watch the rest of the period. And I heard a door slam. And then I heard another door slam. And then I heard footsteps coming back there. And it was Doug McLean standing there. And he goes, what are you thinking fighting? And I'm like, well, you know what happens in hockey? And we were pushing each other and had our differences. And he And he said, I don't pay you to fight. I got other guys on the ice to fight. And he stormed off and said, don't be fighting. And I don't know when my next fight was, but it wasn't any time in the near future. <laughs> what was, uh, I, I am curious because I listen, I miss working with Doug. I think Elliot yeah. misses working with Doug. He was, yeah. uh, not only was he talented on the air, but, you know, even just sitting in the green room and watching games, he was fantastic and a great storyteller. We really miss him. What was he like as a manager for you? Yeah, Doug was an interesting guy because I honestly I have this not argument, but this debate with a lot of people around Columbus of what he has done for the city and for the organization. He was the face before there was even a, uh, an arena or there was a team. So he kind of created a lot of energy and a lot of excitement around the city for hockey that Columbus isn't really known, wasn't known as I should say as a hockey town. As him as a president and GM, I think he did a great job in, in the early years. And I think, you know, a lot of people around here will debate it. But I don't think that he he got the true applause for what he did for this uh, franchise. So I, as a manager, I mean, he was great. He was always honest with his players and what he expected on the ice. The other thing, too, is you had a really good relationship with the original owner of the Blue Jackets, who was John Henderson McConnell. And I guess everybody called him Johnny Mac. That was the way he was referred. And, you know, when I was asking around for stories about you, Rick, one of the things that people talked about was his funeral. And they said that you gave a wonderful speech and you talked about the playoffs. And they said that, like, it was almost fitting that the next year was the first time Columbus made the playoffs. And I was just wondering if you could take us back to that because I guess you came back from overseas for it and the speech you gave was, people just said it was beautiful. Yeah, that was a interesting situation too just because we were at the World Championships. I think it was in Halifax that year and we oh, got okay. the call that uh, Mr. Mack mm-hmm. passed away. And, um, you know, there was, I think, two of us on the team and Hitch Ken Hitchcock was coaching, so we all... Uh, made our way back to Columbus for the uh, memorial and, and and those kind of things. And I was asked to uh, speak because I had a pretty good relationship with him from, you know, hanging out with him at the arena and at his uh, golf course. And he always just wanted us to work hard and give the fans like a great product on the ice. So we I ended up speaking that year and I was probably a little above my head promising him uh, watching from heaven a playoff berth. And I'm telling you, that that season, just everything seemed to go right. It seemed like he had his hand in it and he was helping us along the way. But um, he, he was an incredible man and an incredible family and their family still own the team here. And I truly believe that they would do anything to try to bring a championship here. Doug McLean would always tell us the stories of your second contract and and how important it was. I mean, listen, it's set up a lot of players right now. Like the second contract now is a big thing uh, for players. And you were one of, if not the first, to really ring the bell on that second contract. Doug, as you know, loved you as a player. What was the McConnell family like, though, to deal with on things like contracts? Because obviously it's it's all going to go through the late John McConnell. Yeah, so it's it's funny because I kind of see the other end of it now. Before, you know, I, I got to give a lot of credit to uh, Joe Resnick. It's funny when you talk about that kind of bridge deal thing that was, wasn't really a thing, and then, you know, the guys after whether it was Perry or or Getzlaff and and all these different contracts were kind of modeled after that one. So, you know, it's credit to Joe on doing that. Now, dealing with the jackets on on those situations, it, it was always a healthy dialect between the uh, all, all the different parties. I can truly say there was never really pushback or, or arguments or, or situations where one side was considering leaving the talks. They were always upfront and honest, and I think that's what made it so easy for players to uh, play for them and give them their best. You know what I remember? I was watching it last night, too. The look on your face when you scored against Chicago, the point that got you into the playoffs, and you talked about you try to keep a lot of your feelings and emotions 
bubbling under the surface, but there was no way you were stopping that one that night. Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, it's, I I love, they have a still photo of it that you can still kind of see around the rink or, or online and, and you could just see kind of the, the excitement and the, uh, the relief almost. And it was one of those feelings that uh, I've only felt a few times in my career. And, you know, one being uh, 2010 Olympics when Sid scored the goal. And the other one is, is when we finally tied the game to uh, clinch that playoff spot. It was just a, uh, a feeling like the whole weight of the world was off your shoulders. I don't remember your reaction to Sid. What was it? Do you remember what you did? Well, I, I think I was the first one to the pile from the bench, if you watch that. But, you know, you, we, we talk about downplaying. And obviously, after Torino finishing uh, seventh or sixth or whatever it was, mm-hmm. and then coming to your home country and basically needing to win gold, there was no other color that Canadians wanted. And, you know, we downplayed the pressure quite a bit through the uh, the tournament. But I'll tell you, I remember everyone sitting in that room after that game and and there was more of a sense of relief before the uh, celebration started. Correct me if I'm wrong. You played with Jonathan Taves and Mike Richards. That was your line for 2010, like going into that tournament as you're talking to your teammates, talking to your coaching staff, like what was your line in your estimation designed to do? Like what was your goal out there every night? Yeah, it was, it was funny. And I can relate it to a meeting that Steve Eiserman started with the Vancouver Olympics and he started with the Sochi Olympics. And the first thing was, was check your ego at the door. Mm. You know, there's a lot of captains here. There's a lot of guys that play power play PK top minutes. And he goes, that's what this is not about. You're going to have to play different roles in, in different situations in order to uh, win a gold medal. So when I got put with Jonathan and Mike on, on the same line, it was a shutdown role. I mean, we played against Parise and the gold medal. We played against Ovechkin and the, uh, quarters, I, I believe it was. So it was different. You know, you were playing defense first and you weren't taking too many chances offensively. But the thing that stuck was check your ego at the door. You're, you're going to do whatever it takes to win gold. And that's the bottom line. That must have been a very difficult thing for you to do is check your ego at the door, Rick. <laughs> yeah. You know how big mind is, Elliot, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's so many questions I, I have to ask you. And I'll, here's a couple. Number one, Someone said to me that there's no way that you and I would ever be able to get along because I'm the biggest slob alive and nobody had a neater locker than Rick Nash. Are you a neat freak? I am. I mean, I I like to keep it organized and keep it neat and kind of know where everything is. So I feel like we've still got along over the years, though. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm wondering, is there something that had to be somewhere? I've learned that people are really interested in these kinds of things. Is there something that had to be somewhere in your stall or on your desk, for example, when you're working and things like that? It was funny in my stall. um, I I seem to always get bad lace bite. And if people don't know what lace bite is, it's it's where you kind of tie the knot in your skates right across the uh, front of your ankle Mm -hmm. where it kind of bends there and I would get really bad lace bite and I've tried so many different things like bunga pads and foam tying your skates looser leaving the hole undone basically everything and finally I came across that uh, if I didn't wash my socks and they didn't become tight again so they would be loose when I put them on it would kind of help with the uh, with the uh, lace bite so I used to put my socks in a certain area in my stall and sometimes when you know if I got traded or went to Olympics or, you know, one of the other trainers didn't notice and they took them and and washed them. I I could honestly tell you that was the one thing that I had everything laid out perfect for my lace bite in in my neat stall. (laughs) See, I I like that kind of stuff. I love hearing about the superstitions and the idiosyncrasies. But the other one I wanted to ask is about when you finished playing in 2018, you had opportunities to play. And I, I know Vegas was after you and I heard Toronto was after you. But one thing I didn't really know the depths of until this week was that you almost went back to Columbus. And how close did it come? And did you think for a time there that you would play again for the Blue Jackets? Yeah, that's a good one because, you know, growing up at diehard Leaf fan, it would be pretty cool to wear the blue and white Maple Leaf. And, you know, always, always being a huge fan, you always think about that once you get to the NHL, what it'd be like to play for them. But um, yeah, I had a, I had a weird, not a weird period, but a kind of an off period after July 1st there when I became a uh, 
uh, UFA and met with a few different teams and Columbus being one of them and had very good talks with Yarmo and we kind of came up with a plan and in a situation that would bring me back to Columbus to play some more. I asked them to give me some time so I can talk to the doctors and and meet with, uh, you know, sit down with my family and talk to them. And, you know, after a few days, we figured out what was uh, important to me and that obviously being my health. So I called Yarmo and and thanked him and, and said it would have been great to continue on. But, you know, after the amount of years and the amount of concussions I went through, I just figured it was time to pick my family and health over hockey. Uh, I did not know that story. Um, no one can argue it either. It's the right choice. No, and that is completely the right choice. And, you know, no one's, listen, you've, the, the, the body of work that you laid before everybody before that speaks for itself. And, um, you know, whether it's, you know, winning the Rocket Richard Trophy at 19 years of age, uh, which is the youngest player ever. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned the World Championships a couple of moments ago, and I can remember that goal. Uh, I think we all can against Finland. Uh, Ansi Salmala was draped all over your back and you sort of shrugged him off and still tucked it past Nicholas Backstrom. The Arizona cut, the, the, the then Phoenix Coyotes goal, which is a thing of beauty as well. Pekka, outlet pass for Rick Nash. Nash now tries to split the defense and walk in. Nice move, another nice move. Oh. He scores! Oh. What a goal! Oh. It doesn't get any better than this. Oh. Rick Nash, how do you do? Oh, oh baby! My goodness gracious! Holy moly! Nash's third point of the night. Wow! Second goal of the evening. Jeff, that's the best goal I've seen Rick Nash score in his career. He takes a chip pass inside, outside on on the defenseman again, and then the whole dead or nothing left. Wow! A bound and determined Rick Nash. Take a look at this. From ice level, remember it was Rick Nash. I know you say you're pretty humble, and it sounds like you're very humble. Like you're, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to big yourself up. But you've, like, when you look at your career, Rick, like you did some amazing things with teams, not just in the NHL, but also internationally as well. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what do you take the most pride in? From whether it's an individual moment, whether it's a team moment, because you know, you're given hockey fans, you know, over the course of your your 15 seasons in the NHL and internationally as well, you gave fans a lot of reasons to get excited. What do you take pride in? That's a tough one to answer just because you, you play in a team sport and, you know, everything's about the team and, you know, it's all these cliches that no one's bigger than the organization and, and all that stuff. And I, I truly believe that as for personally, I mean, I, I take a lot of pride in, in what my former teammates say about me. Mm-hmm. I hope they thought I was a good teammate and someone that, you know, went to battle each night with them and, and tried to compete the hardest to win games. I take a lot of pride in, in what I, what I did with team Canada, whether it was world championships, um, world juniors, under 18s, Olympics, you play in the NHL, but I can say there's nothing like putting on a a hockey Canada Jersey and, and playing for your nation. It seems to be always at the highest level and, and created some great moments and in great games. You know, it was fun in, in New York when we were uh, going to the finals and, you know, and got there so close. I take a lot of pride in that, even though it didn't turn out the way uh, we wanted it to. But I, I always I always put the team uh, success higher than my own. But those are a few things that I kind of value. I've always wondered, like, there's always people there that we don't know that are huge parts of your existence your success i mean obviously your family your wife jessica your children but i'm wondering when the number goes up on saturday night is there anybody else in and around columbus that you're going to be thinking of and saying this person was critical to my success publicly or privately here yeah well i think the obvious ones come out first like my parents and, and everything they've been through to get me where, where I am and always give me the best opportunity to succeed. I think another one is, is Joe Resnick. I've, I've had a working relationship with Joe since I was 14. And, uh, you know, those were the days with Gord Kirk and, mm-hmm. and Stellick and Robbins. And I know, Elliot, you know all them pretty well. And yep. I've known me since I was probably that age or about me. So, you know, th- those guys sometimes don't get the recognition that they deserve. You know, agents don't really can get a bad uh, rep, but I'm telling you, Joe has always looked out for me on the ice and, and more importantly, off the ice. But in and around Columbus, 
I think I, I value, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people that work here and the people that have been here since day one, I'm hoping to uh, recognize during my speech. It's an individual number going up, mm -hmm. but for the organization, for the people that have seen this place since there wasn't the uh, arena here, to think that we've come this far mm -hmm. and in the history, we are finally putting a number up. I, I want to make sure that those people are uh, are valued. One of the things that I learned from becoming a player to uh, to front office is how much goes into it from scouts to uh, sponsor sales to ticket sales. When you're a player, you just kind of worry about what's going on on the ice. And and I, I truly have a new appreciation for everything that goes on in the uh, in the office. You know, Todd Chirac, I think, would probably be one of those guys. And I just know that the media relations people, they've got the toughest job because half the time we're yelling at them because, you know, we want to talk to someone or they're trying to protect a player. And the other half of the time, there's people in the organization saying, you know, why do I have to deal with all this stuff from outside? <laughs> and they're trying to get you to at least talk. And I know Todd, he thinks the world of you and uh, he's been there a long time. And, you know, sometimes the relationship between a player and a person in that position, you know, what that's like for you too. It's a great point because those guys can never win, right? Someone, someone's always mad at them, it, it seems. And uh, funny enough, me and Todd spent the day yesterday traveling around to the uh, couple radio stations and news stations, and we were just reminiscing. And on uh, when we did it with the uh, original story we opened with, with the Bob Evans coffee, mm -hmm. um, and we were just here 20 years later doing it again. It was just funny, but I, I think you're right. Those guys don't get recognized, don't get appreciated enough. And that's why I, I kind of brought up the organization um, really enjoying Saturday night because everyone who's part of it is part of that event. And it's tough to express in, into words or into, uh, you know, different situations to recognize how great they are. But I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Rick, last one for me. And, you know, the last couple of days as, you know, Saturday gets closer and closer, uh, I've gone back and watched a lot of your videos, your highlights mm. and old pictures as well. Uh, specifically of you with the London Knights. Um, your number has been retired there. You're one of the legendary London Knights and an organization that's produced many. And, you know, this morning I was online just looking at image search and found one of you with the London Knights and, God, you just look so young. And I'm saying, okay, I'm going to talk to Rick Nash a little bit later on today. And you know, here he is. So he might have been 17 years old, I think, at that point. And after having gone through everything that you've gone through in your career, in your life, I know it's a cliched question, but if you could talk to that kid, what does Rick Nash say now to that kid playing junior hockey with London? Mm -hmm. It's probably a harder question to answer. And I've uh, I've thought about it before, and there's a, there's a fine line. So right away, I would say try to enjoy it more, not take it so serious, because what every veteran says to a young guy coming into the league is enjoy it because it goes fast. And when you're young and 18, 17, whatever it is, you're just like, yeah, right. I got a lot of years to play, but the next thing you know, you're you're retired and it's over. So. The question that I kind of asked myself is if I could have enjoyed it more and, and taken more of it in and, you know, wasn't so serious and, and, you know, just enjoyed living my dream of being an NHL hockey player and, and everything that comes along with it. Would have I had the same success and would we be here talking today about my number going up in the rafters? So that's kind of where I sit with that. And if it's the one thing that I, I could have said, I would have said, just make sure you sit back and try to slow things down and enjoy it mm. because before you know it, it's going to be over. But then I ask myself, would we be sitting here talking if I did? Two more for me, Rick. Number one, will you be a GM someday? I hope so. I mean, I think that's why I want to take the long, uh, you know, road of going through all these different uh, areas, um, you know, within an organization to learn and, and try to be the best person I can once I work my way up there. Um, I'm not in any rush. I have a young family mm -hmm. and I'm enjoying uh, watching them grow. But, uh, you know, I, I truly believe that I'm learning from one of the best in Yarmo Kekalainen. And, mm -hmm. and I, I look at him as a mentor. And, you know, I, I'm putting all this work in. You know, I don't think I want to stay in development for the rest of my career. I, I'm a young guy. But, uh, you know, I, I'm here to learn right now and grow within the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets, if that makes sense. It sure does. And I do think Kekalainen is an excellent person to learn from. No question about it. Now, this is a Columbus day, but there's one New York Rangers story I want to ask you about. And it's about your first day there 
and it's Henrik Lundqvist and Alex Rodriguez. What is this story? Yeah, that's a good one. I'm I'm impressed, Elliot. You've uh, you've dug around for this one. I don't <laughs> think I've ever told this one publicly. Um, yeah, you you got me smiling here. So I got traded to New York, and I went in right away. My wife and I, and we did some media tour stuff. Uh, you know, cruising around the city with uh, with Jr. Legendary Jr. That everyone knows. Yeah, John Rosasco. Yep, exactly, and. Um, we continued on our, our day and, and Henrik Lundqvist invited us over for a drink at his place. So we went up to his penthouse apartment and, you know, a kid from Brampton has been playing in Columbus for the last 10 years. I haven't seen many other athletes or celebrities and and walk in and there's A-Rod standing right there and meet A-Rod. And, you know, we had a fun night in New York City. And for me, growing up in Toronto around Original Six where hockey is number one, I don't think I ever crossed paths with a maple leaf growing up. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wouldn't even be a question that you could get to see a maple leaf around. So for me going to New York and then that being my first night in New York, sitting in a penthouse apartment, overlooking the whole city, having a few drinks with the King and, uh, and A-Rod. I mean, that was one of those moments where you felt like you were in the NHL. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, that's a fantastic story. Rick, listen, uh, this is going to be such a special night um, before Columbus faces off against the Boston Bruins. Uh, number 61 goes high to the rafters. Uh, it's going to be a special night. And listen, I'll uh, I'll give you the same advice you'd give to a 17-year-old Rick Nash, and that is enjoy it. Uh, soak it all in. You deserve it. You were a fantastic hockey player. And, you know, that's going to be one of, you know, many post-career accolades uh, on the horizon for you. Enjoy Saturday, Rick. Thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it you guys doing this. Those are some great questions and some great, uh, you know, digging by you guys and some great (laughs) stories. And uh, I can't appreciate you guys enough for having me on. Thank you. Thanks so much for doing it. Of course. No problem. Hey, Rick. Mm -hmm. I grew up in London, so I watched you play when I was a little boy. Uh, I watched all the games at the Ice House and your jersey retired at the Budweiser Garden, which was John Bad Center back then. But you never got to play there. Not many people remember what the Ice House was all about. So could you tell people, like, what was the Ice House and what are some of your fondest memories playing there for two years? You know what? That's a great question, and no one's ever asked me. And when my jersey got retired in London, I did a quick three- or four-minute speech, and I brought that point up. I said, wow, like, this is this is a beautiful building. This is the first time I'm ever uh, on the ice at the – I think it was John Labatt's or Budweiser Gardens, whatever they called it at the time uh, that year. And I said, this is this is incredible, but I'm not upset about it. I feel bad for every single London night player that didn't get a chance to play in the uh, the ice house. So that was a little story that I told <laughs> that. Uh, hmm. I mean, that that rink was awesome. The playoff series were incredible. I remember when we beat Plymouth, uh, I think Plymouth was ranked third in the CHL. And we just snuck in on the eighth spot in the Western Conference. And we took down the uh, the third-place CHL team with uh, Cole Jarrett, Stephen Weiss, maybe, Bakashawa. They were loaded. And the Ice House was incredible, the atmosphere. It was an old barn with a lower roof. Right outside the visiting room, there was a door outside, and we'd make sure our security guards would keep those doors propped open to keep the, uh, the visiting locker room freezing cold. Uh, then we went on to play Erie that next series, who ended up winning the uh, who ended up winning the Mem Cup with Brad Boyce, uh, Koliakovo. There's a, a few other great players in that team, and I think they swept every series and won the Mem Cup except our series. And I remember talking to Brad after that, and he said, "You guys were the team that we were worried about the most, and we took them to six games." Mm. So the London Ice House or the London Gardens, whatever you want to call it had a lot to do with that playoff success. It's an amazing place. It really was. Like the smell when you walked in, it's, it was unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. I love watching games there. I love watching you play as a 16-year-old too. It was amazing. Well, thank you. That was a special place. You're right. And no one ever asked me about that, so I'm glad you asked me. Awesome. Thanks, Rick. Our producer with the best question of the I'm interview. Say, maybe almost should be doing the interviews. What are we doing here? I don't know if you can top the A-Rod one. That was so good. That caught me off guard. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rick, and have a great weekend with your family, okay? Okay, I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Be well, Rick. Yeah.
We really hope you enjoyed that interview. Uh, congratulations to Rick Nash uh, and a special thanks to uh, Todd Schrock and the Columbus Blue Jackets organization for making Rick Nash available for the podcast. Taking us out today is Cincinnati-based quartet who recorded their debut album years before they released it. The Heavy Hours, great name, is an alternative rock band whose debut record brings a soulful sound with sophisticated lyrics and memorable melodies. From Gardens, here's the heavy hours with Spend My Money on 32 Thoughts, the podcast. Gotcha.